The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and as I like to remind you each and every week, I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And for those of you interested in subscribing to Chen, now's the time to do it. Over the first few days of this quarter, Chen is accepting new subscribers up to a certain limit, and there still is room. So if you're interested in subscribing to Chen, now is the time to do it. Go to Mining Stock. Stocks.com, miningstocks.com to sign up for Chen's letter or my letter as well. Uh, I do want to thank each of you for listening to this show, making it one of the more popular shows in the Voice America Business Channel. I also would like to encourage you to keep your questions and comments um, coming to questions for Taylor at gmail.com. Questions, the number for Taylor at gmail.com. And uh, my Twitter handle is jtaylormedia. Also, I'd uh, like to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Carlisle Goldfields, Copper Bank Resources, Colinex Mines, and we want to welcome our new sponsor today, Oren Resources. And we'll be talking to the CEOs of all of those companies along the way uh, over the next few weeks. Today's show I've titled The Powers Behind the Throne That Own and Control America. And James Perloff, Jeff Deist, and Michael Oliver uh, return today. I'll be talking to Michael in just a couple of uh, minutes from now. Uh, Perloff returns uh, for his monthly visit to discuss his latest book titled Truth is a Lonely Warrior. Uh, last month we discussed chapters one and two of his book, and then he told us about, uh, told us why he believes that, that America has uh, that the policymakers have had to use false flags to get the American people interested in waging war over the past six wars. Uh, the last one being the Iraqi War. Today James will cover material in chapters three and four of his book. Uh, and those chapters uh, will cover the topics of who really owns and runs America and how they have come to gain control over our country, even as the population has uh, been convinced uh, that they are the owners of the country. Uh, of course, uh, that's what the founding fathers suggested. We had a republic, not a democracy, but a republic in which we had representative government, 
people. It was supposed to be a government by and for the people. Well, do we still have that? According to James Perloff, not so much so. So we're going to be talking to him about that today. Jeff Deist, he's the president of the Mises Institute, will be with me at about 3.15. He'll be talking uh, about an upcoming event at the Mises Institute that will be held in Connecticut that I plan to attend. Uh, and I uh, hope to talk to Jeff about that. Some very interesting speakers at that event. Uh, James Grant, Judge Napolitano, David Stockman, Peter Schiff, Joseph Salerno, and others will be there. Uh, and uh, also want to talk to Jeff a little bit today about uh, perhaps get his comments on Rand Paul's announcement. Jeff being the former uh, uh, former head headed up and worked with Ron Paul so closely. He was the chief of staff for Ron Paul. Hey, definitely, I'm sure we'll have some comments about Rand Paul, Ron's son, uh, and uh, as he just announced, I believe it was yesterday that he will be running for president. Uh, but at the same time, you know, we're talking about history with James Perloff. We're talking about current events with um, uh, and, and economic policy and, and theories with Jeff Dice. We also like to check in with Michael Oliver, who helps us understand what's happening here and now in the market. So welcome, Michael. Glad uh, you could join me again today. I'm glad to be back. Always good to have you, and I, I wouldn't want to just tell my listeners the website to go to to learn more about Michael's work is uh, OliverMSA.com. Oliver Mary Sam Albert.com. OliverMSA. Uh, Michael, the stock market, uh, again, seems to be humming right along. Uh, we uh, see the equity market is up now. The Dow is up 76. The S&P is up 4.6. NASDAQ is up 15 or so. Uh, not great moves, but pretty solid moves, it would seem. And, uh, you know, for one, I've been on the bearish side of this market all too long. It's, uh, it's, it's not been kind to me because I've, I've not believed in it. Uh, and yet it seems as though uh, the market keeps surprising to the upside. What are, you, what are your thoughts now on the markets, uh, looking at your, uh, at your momentum and uh, trend analysis? Well, the, the long-term metrics that I, I measure, uh, that MSA measures, momentum structural asset aspects of the market, uh, basically began to break down in October with that October break, and again in January, such that my long-term indicators now say top. Now, mm-hmm. that, that's not necessarily actionable because within trends, there are lesser trends. And the lesser trends of the intermediate action of the S&P, the type of trends that last, oh, three or four or five months, they're positive. Now, I have to call them mildly positive or neutral even, because consider the following. While the S&P is up on the year 1.2% right now, it's month four of the new year. Gold, in contrast, is up 2.2%. Uh, nobody's beating that drum, I don't think. Huh? The, no. The gold, the gold bulls are worried and the stock bulls are exuberant, and yet gold's up more than <laughs> stocks. And the S&P, when you break it down within its uh, larger sectors or its key sectors, um, and using the, the pure ETFs that have only financial stocks or only tech stocks and so forth, uh, the tech sector measured by the Morgan Stanley Tech Index, purely technology, traded down on the year today. Oh. Earlier in the day, you were down on the year. It's month four now. Uh, mm. Financials are down on the year, have not been up in the year. Industrials mm. are down on the year, not been up in the year. I'm talking the industrial sector, not the down industrials. Transports, mm-hmm. despite the positive benefit of inter- low energy, are down 5% on the year. Mm. So wow. when, when one is impressed by the up market, you know, break it down and take a look at it. And it isn't so impressive as it seems. And I, I still regard it as a topping process. So I'm focused on the intermediate breakdown levels. 
I think those start at 2050 and extend to about 2030 on the S&P. If we go uh-huh. to those levels, we're going down. And right now, they're just dancing on top of them. <laughs> so, uh, I don't think they can dance on top of them too much longer. Uh, well, you had a very interesting uh, term that you used in your last missive, the weekend missive. Uh, you talked about bullish hyperventilation. What do you mean by that? Well, when a market does not exhale, and consider up to up is inhale, exhale is a correction. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of my metrics have not exhibited exhaling behavior in very many months, uh, such as oscillations below things like uh, three-month averages or 10-month averages, you know, where you, you get an exhale, but it won't even go below some modest average. I'm not talking about annual things, but things are much shorter term. Uh, so it indicates a willingness on the part of the bulls to buy dips and not even wait for good breaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's so eager. It, it indicates exuberance. Uh, even if the market's not going ballistic, on the downside, it won't even correct what, what you could call a good correction. Uh, mm-hmm. So, therefore, I, I ascribe the attribute of uh, you know, exuberance or, or inhale only uh, yeah. and that hyperventilation, therefore. Well, I mean, that doesn't work too well if we don't exhale once in a while. I guess the same right. thing is true of the markets. Ultimately, you can't inhale forever is the message, right? You turn blue in the face. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, um, switching to gold and the dollar, I noticed the dollar is up very strongly again today. It's up over a point on the, on the index. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you just mentioned, though, in spite of that, the dollar has been strong. It's got up to, uh, up to parity, up to unity, I guess, is over one on the index. And yet you just mentioned a moment ago that gold is up 2.2%. Normally, uh, you've made the point on this show, of course, that you don't have to see the two running in opposite directions, gold and the dollar. Uh, but but clearly, both of them have been on the upside to an extent this this year so far. Uh, what are you seeing now for the dollar and for gold? Well, for gold, I'm very pleased with what happened this week uh, after last Friday uh, occurred Monday in the in the futures market. The market traded up above its three quarter average. Now, it's not because it's an average that you got above that that makes a big difference. But it happened structurally that that is an important rally. It tells me it it indicates strongly to me that the secondary test we had of the November low. The November low was just above 1130. Uh, last month, we got down into the 1140s. And I know at that point in time, all the bears were just cheering, we're going to bl- blast to new lows, go to 1100 or 800 yeah. or whatever they were fantasizing. Sure. I didn't see the, the, the case for that. I saw no necessity in that because the November low, by my measures, was righteous. I mean, and it was, it was as pristine as you could get for a final low. Uh-huh. And therefore, I thought that the March sell-off probably should hold it. It did. Uh, getting back above uh, 1218, which is the three-quarter average this quarter, uh, yesterday on gold, that's a good sign. Uh, it's not a breakout. It just says, I'm safe. It's like, you know, when you were a kid playing a game and you touched the home base, okay? You're, you're safe. Yep. I think that was a good step. Um, as far as the dollar goes, I think it's entered a congestive period. It got over 100 on the dollar index. Drop back down into the 96s. I think you could see it below 95 in the next month or two. And I think the ups and downs you're seeing now are part of a congestion and a pullback process. Uh, in particular, what I would be focused on is not so much the dollar index having a pullback, but the yen. Uh, the yen yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you've turned, you've turned somewhat bu- uh, bullish on the yen for now. Well, it's, it hasn't triggered by numbers, but I think it will. It's, it's got the... Uh, the pregnant look of, of, a, of a bottom that's just going to break out. And, and the yen, 
is not a heavily weighted component of the dollar index. It's less than the euro. It's like 57% of the dollar index. The yen is only like 13% or so. It's the second biggest component, but still it's small. So the yen could have an upside tantrum and really not cause the dollar to drop all that much. Uh, and the yen is a particularly potent, I called it the katana in the eye, the, the sword, you know, uh, <laughs> in the eye of the Bank of Japan, because they've wanted it to go down. It has gone down. It's gone down severely over a long period of time, a couple years. So they've gotten their wish fulfillment, but it looks technically poised now to poke them in the eye on the upside, which would upset their sense of control over the events, uh, much like any central bank has that sense of control right now. Uh, yen futures is what I look at. They're trading uh, below 84 right now. You get above 86, I wouldn't be shocked to see the yen futures run up into the 95 to 100 area, mm -hmm. uh, which would upset a lot of ancillary situations. Uh, a lot of carry uh, trades are occurring where they, they borrow the yen at effectively nothing, take the yes. money and parlay it elsewhere. Yes. And I think if the, if the yen rallied, it would upset a lot of apple carts. Yeah, because all of a sudden people are going to have to pay back in more expensive yen than they thought they were going to pay back in. And that could really, could re I would think that would be potentially, I mean, not talking as a technical analyst because I'm not one, but it would seem to be uh, bullish potentially for gold, something like that. And I think inversely uh, for the S&P, it has a very, very strong negative correlation to the S&P. Sure. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I, I, I think you mentioned in your missive, in fact, that... Uh, uh, according to Bloomberg, that the uh, carry trade, uh, the yen is the yen carry trade now is as large as it was back in two thousand and eight. I don't know what their metrics are, but uh, yeah, I trust that they, they did their homework, and that's what they're alleging, uh, yeah. which doesn't surprise me. Which doesn't well. surprise. Well, it's it's all about making money in the short term, I guess, isn't it? It's about borrowing cheap and as cheap as possible, and then you sort of gamble or you try to hedge your risks, I suppose, if you can. Uh, on the in the currency side, uh, to the extent you're able to do that, but uh, that's a long-term oh, very... management thought too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and it, you know, uh, it's interesting thing about derivatives is that derivatives, uh, you know, on a micro basis, uh, seem to in reduce your risks, but I think on a macro basis, potentially systemic basis, actually increase the risks. But you, uh, you really very interesting work that you're doing, Michael. Always appreciate it. Uh, you what? Just we have one minute left here. I think my engineer is telling me how does the the long bond still look pretty strong? Uh, yeah, I need to bond? reassess it. I fo I'm focused uh, most on the ten year notes in Japan, Germany, uh -huh. here, and they have some vulnerability, but they're not they're not close enough to the points of vulnerability. I, I am suspecting that sometime this year we're going to have an interest rate problem uh, in the ten year on out maturities. I um, mean, in the, the, the safe markets, Germany, Japan, and here, where rates do, in fact, rise, and nothing to do with the Federal Reserve. Uh, the technicals were not close enough yet to trigger them, but they, they are there. They do exist, and I suspect before the year's over, we're going to see those structures broken, which case no. we will, in fact, have higher rates. Uh, nothing well, to do I, with the Fed again. Yeah. One can only imagine what kind of chaos and havoc that could wreck on our markets uh, once we start having interest rate rises because and of course that's what the what the markets seem to be so scared of and as soon as uh, the markets start to throw a hissy fit out runs a federal reserve official to assure the markets that oh we'll, we're not going to do anything irrational we'll we'll keep the money flowing so but ultimately michael i think it's going to break down and we're looking to you for your insights and the charts to help us uh, see 
when the markets are going to start to exhale or do what it's, what they should do if they were left alone in their own devices to do. So I want to thank you very much for being with us again, and I look forward to talking to you next week, hopefully. Glad to be here. Thank you, Jay. Thank, thank you, Michael. Well, folks, don't go away because Jeff Dice is coming up. He's going to be with me immediately after the break. We're going to talk to him. Uh, about Rand Paul and about the Mises Institute, some very interesting things going on there. And then after Jeff, uh, later about half past the hour, James Perloff will be with me. So don't go away. I'll be right back with Jeff Deist. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Where infrastructure meets grade, Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again my old friend, Jeff Deist. Uh, he, Jeff was previously Ron Paul's chief of staff, and he is now the president of the Mises Institute. So welcome, Jeff. Thanks for joining me again. Thanks, Jay. Good to talk to you. Good to have you with me. You know, we were just talking to Michael Oliver, who I know you interviewed, and it was an excellent interview, by the way, that you did with Michael. Uh, you, it is posted at the Mises Institute. Tell our listeners they might want to go there, not only for Michael's interview, but for some other really excellent material that's there, uh, written material as well as interviews that Jeff does, and uh, just a lot of great content. If you really are a fan of free markets, then the Mises Institute is one place you've got a bookmark and go there as frequently. I don't go there as often as I should, and frankly, there would be a lot of material there that I could share with you on this show, and I plan to do that uh, with you, my listeners, over the uh, coming year. Uh, Jeff is just uh, Michael Oliver, uh, who was just on our show, was talking about. Actually, sent me an email earlier today, and he's a real big Rand Paul fan. Um, and I know there are a lot of people of, of a free market leaning that definitely like Rand. And Rand just announced that he was going to be a candidate for uh, president, and following in his father's footsteps, perhaps. Uh, but uh, but Michael uh, really likes him, and, and says he thinks that he really will sort of perhaps create a third party or a third party movement at least that would break away from the establishment, essentially away from the statist tendencies that we've been into for, oh, for certainly over the last hundred years or so, the, the direction away from, uh, from freedom, liberty, from liberty and free market economics. 
Um, and my thinking is, well, you know, he's in the primaries now. The primaries are one thing. It's always easy. You can carve out a certain niche in the primaries, try to gain a few people that are not perfectly in your niche, but, you know, enough perhaps to gain some power and some votes in the primary. Maybe, maybe there's an outside chance Rand could become the candidate, but then what? Well, I'd like to get your thoughts uh, as one who uh, certainly knows his father very well. Uh, what are your thoughts? What's, what are Rand's chances of, of changing things for the better? Boy, Jay, first and foremost, I got to say, I do not envy him because what you have to say and do and, and just the physical and mental rigors of trying to become president of the United States are so daunting. And frankly, if one were to become the GOP nominee, uh, most likely you're going to have to face the Clinton machine, which is not a happy prospect because, oh, as you goodness. know, I mean, they are just amoral grifters who destroy people who get in their way. So that's not something I would wish upon anyone. And so just on a personal level, you know, I hate to see um, Ron and Carol have to worry about their son and right. the attacks on him. But, you know, this is the age-old libertarian question, isn't it? You know, does incrementalism work or should we stick to our radical guns and, uh, you know, just be completely philosophically consistent? Now, Ron, of course, enjoyed the luxury of running purely uh, with the goal of educating people, yes. opening people's minds to libertarian literature. He didn't have the added pressure of having to win or, frankly, particularly wanting to win. I mean, I've heard the joke, uh, which, I, which I enjoy uh, when I'm not in Ron's presence, which is, goes something like this. Um, Ron Paul running for president is like an atheist becoming pope, right? <laughs> um, but, but Rand's in, in a very different uh, set of circumstances. And, and look, you won't find a more hardcore anarcho-capitalist than Murray Rothbard. Mm-hmm. And Murray Rothbard fully supported political action if that was your thing. If that mm-hmm. was what you thought might bring you a little more liberty or stave off a little more totalitarianism, maybe you thought if, if person A was elected dog catcher in your town over person B that somehow you would benefit, hey, knock yourself out. And he, <laughs> you know, he, made, he made certain calculations in his own life. I mean he spent many, many years – sort of spinning his wheels trying to get the Libertarian Party to move in certain directions. But then later on, you know, he was very honest and forthright. For instance, in 1992, and he caught a lot of flack for this, but he supported Pat Buchanan over Bush Sr. Uh, strictly because, not, you know, obviously Buchanan was bad on, on free trade, etc. Yes. But he supported the senior, uh, elder Bush strictly because he saw Bush as more of a Rockefeller-cum-neocon Republican, whereas he saw Pat Buchanan as an anti-war populist who would just keep us out of war. So strictly uh-huh. on the issue of war and peace, he supported Pat Buchanan. Now, Interesting. Now, I, I very, very, very much doubt – now, someone out there is going to correct me, someone with more libertarian historical knowledge than me. I very, very much doubt that Murray went to the polls and uh, voted in that 92 primary. I pretty much bet my right arm on it. But, uh, you know, nonetheless – I don't think – I think if people want to support Rand Paul, if they want to go out and involve, engage in politics and they think that that's going to create a more libertarian U.S. or a more libertarian world, then they should do so. That's not my cup of tea. Yeah. Um, I don't think incrementalism works. I think incrementalism is a sto- sto- great story of the 20th century on, from, from the side of the left, from the state. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it works very well when you, when you look at the state growing. Um, but you know, it's very, very tough. Can he get traction – 
Boy, I, I don't think the GOP is a libertarian party. No, at all. not at all. I don't think that he has uh, made a good case thus far for why Christian conservatives should vote for him, which is basically federalism and allowing these uh, social issues to be decided locally where Christians might actually win in a state like Utah while they might lose in a state like uh, New York or California. I don't think Christian conservatives are uh, particularly interested in that message. And as far as the, uh, the war hawks that he's attempting to triangulate and appease, um, they're always going to have a Santorum or a, or somebody to vote for who's going to out hawk him. Um, yeah. So it's it's a mixed bag, but th- this is what Rand's chosen to do, and and pe- people who support him, I say, knock yourself out. Yeah, well, certainly uh, Ron Paul took an incrementalist view in terms of education. I think I remember it was sort of taken back by his comments one time when I had him on my show. Talked about uh, how the left, as you just noted, has made progress incrementally uh his uh, his view was that uh, on an educational basis you know from an educational perspective you need to to gradually educate the populace and uh, i mean to the extent that rand can do that i suppose that could be helpful uh but you know it's, i think it was mark skousen who uh, said to me well you know rand may not be as uh, you know as pure as his father but he's electable well we'll see about that but uh in in any event he is uh, he is a candidate now, so we'll certainly watch with interest. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I I don't know which way I stand on it. I, I think I I kind of uh, am in agreement with you. Uh, but let's let's hope that uh, some good education comes out of the process and people can start to think in terms of you know what our problems are and why we're having those problems. If if Rand can follow up in his father's footsteps in that regard, I think that would be great. But let's talk a little bit about the Mises Institute. And it's Mises.org, folks. That's where you should go, Mises.org. Very simple URL to remember. Bookmark that and go there frequently. But coming up, Jeff, and I want to ask you about the May 7th Mises Circle. Mises uh, Institute has these various events around the country. I know you had one in California, I think, and maybe in Texas. And now you're doing one in the New York City area in Connecticut. Tell our listeners about it and who are some of the uh, speakers that are going to be there. Well, we're excited. We're going to be in Stanford, Connecticut on Thursday, May 7th. Normally we do our events on Saturdays, but because the New York City area is wired a little differently, um, we're doing it on a Thursday afternoon. We're going to have Jim Grant, obviously famous from uh, earlier at Barron's, but now uh, Grant's interest rate observer um, on his new book. Um, about the uh, f- the depression that never happened, of course, in the 20s. Uh, we're going to have Judge Andrew Napolitano, also a New Yorker. And uh, what, what I'm personally most excited about is we're going to have David Stockman uh, there on May 7th. And I think that his book, Jay, The Great Deformation, is, is absolutely a must-read. I think it's one of the most important books that's been written in the 21st century so far. I, I think it's, if you want to understand the crisis if you, of 08, 09, if you want to understand the history that led up to it, if you want to understand the deformations and misallocations caused by central banks, and basically if you want to understand crony capitalism, um, you have to read this book. It's, it's a page-turner. Um, I read, reread a couple sections last night. Uh, before bedtime, and uh, uh, I got to tell you, um, I don't always 100% agree with his policy prescriptions on how we might fix the mess, but in terms of exposing, analyzing, critiquing central banks, I don't think there's anybody on earth today who's who's more formidable, more intelligent, more educated about this and doing a better job than David Stockman. 
Well, I would tend to agree with you on his his current work now and his commentary on uh, on current events, uh, both uh, both in terms of well, mostly in the economics, but he's also very much in tune with uh, with what we're doing overseas and our foreign policies and our warmongering uh, positions in the United States and the United Nations and so are the um, the uh, NATO uh, certainly seems to be um, you know something that he's talking about frequently. Uh, so yeah, it sounds like a great. Um, it sounds like a great venue. Uh, who who is? Uh, how can people go there? Can people people that want to sign anybody can go? There's a fee, I think, to get in, though, isn't there, Jeff? Well, yeah, it's it's on May seventh. If you go to our website, Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org, and click on events, you can find out more. It's sort of a midday lunch thing, so we're going to have a speaker or two, and then a, a luncheon at a very uh, nice hotel in Stanford, Connecticut. Which, to my understanding, you're going to correct me as a as a um, Somebody from Queens, but my understanding is it's quite easily accessible by train from uh, from Manhattan and Greater New York City. Yeah, from Manhattan, it certainly is. Yeah, it's it's not that hard to get there. So, uh, hopefully, uh, folks listening to this show in this area will, will certainly seriously consider attending. It will be a good time. Uh, I'm planning to go, and I'm hoping my wife can join me as well. Um, the you have a lot of publications and a lot of uh, great content at the Mises. Uh, site, you have uh, something new, a new publication called the Austrian, uh, is it the Austrian Library? It's just called the Austrian. Um, oh, the Austrian, it's, okay. Yeah, it's our, it's our publication that comes out every other month for our members. To be a member, you just sort of go to our website and sign up for an annual membership. And uh, we've really tried to make it some content that's not available Elsewhere, uh, we have some cultural current events, you know, movie reviews, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. Uh, most recently, we just featured Hans Hoppe's new book and the introduction to that, uh, which is really a fascinating book, almost on sociology and anthropology and uh, you know, humans de- humans development uh, into property owning uh, individuals. So. You know, we really try to have a lot of interesting stuff on our site. We have a daily article that I would recommend that, that people subscribe to, and uh, we have a, a ton of great videos. But maybe most importantly, we have the best Austrian library on earth, and most of our library is free to anybody in in PDF form, and we usually have a very low-cost e-reader uh, form of books. And then, of course, we have low-cost books through our bookstore. So if you want to read about Austrian economics and, for little or no money, uh, we've got an enormous library, so I would say that's that's our number one asset on our website. You know, uh, you you have a lot of content. Uh, Hans Hopper, I think you have uh, perhaps someone, the I, I guess someone reading the book or a book that he's written, or or some material from Hans Hopper that's there. I just didn't have a chance to look into it, but. Tell us about what's there. Hans Hopper's work is there now. Yeah, we have we have Hopper's uh, we have several of Hopper's books in PDF format. I think his new book we have a free version of an audio format uh, with someone else reading it. Not Hans. Yes, that's he, what he I'm has a very, to. He has yes. a very severe German uh, pronunciation, so we we should have gotten him to read it. But we have uh, <laughs> uh, unfortunately we have a a, a proxy reading it. Um, and so, really, if you like Hopper. Just go to our website and look up, for instance, Democracy, the God that Failed, one of the most important books on uh, political philosophy, I think, of the early 21st century, and it's available free in PDF. 
Yeah, it's in, and you can listen to it and download it and, and listen to it uh, at your leisure as well, some of that material. So there's just no end of, of good stuff there. I think, Jeff, the main thing that keeps me from spending more time with uh, Mises uh, and the Mises Institute is that I'm so into what's happening right now, moment by moment in the markets. Uh, but I know that you have economists that are uh, keeping up to date pretty much with what's going on and making comment on those uh, on policy and events and, and m- the markets on a regular basis. So I would really uh, encourage my listeners to go there at Mises.org, avail yourself to the to the resources, multiple resources, educate yourself, and I think you'll have a better understanding. What's, really, what we try to do on this show is to help people understand why things are going awry, why things are not working out as, as they have in the past, uh, or as well as they have in the past. Also, another thing that I saw that looked very interesting, Adam Voss-Gal, um, how the state destroys the poor. I think you did an interview with him just recently, Jeff. Would you care to comment just very briefly on that? Yeah, we do a weekend interview show, and we try to get a little farther afield in that show than just pure Austrianism or monetary policy or banking or money, which those are the areas where we really tend to focus. So um, Adam is a very interesting guy, um, a, very, a, a very brilliant guy, and he recently wrote a book called Generational Poverty. Uh, some of your listeners might be familiar with the work that Charles Murray has done sure. on poverty, that Thomas Sowell has done, that Walter Williams has done. So Adam is a, is a young guy, and he went out and uh, got himself involved in the Big Brothers Big Sisters program in Tennessee where he lives and ended up becoming a big brother to a young man uh, who was in kind of a dysfunctional family and didn't mm-hmm. have a great home life. And so uh, after spending a couple of years with this young man and, and sort of getting him uh, past high school graduation and into early adulthood, or helping to, um, he decided that he would you know, write up some of what he saw in a book. Uh, so the book became Generational Poverty. It's on Amazon now. And uh, it was just really fascinating that he was able to relay some of the uh, dysfunction and the mindset that he saw and how so many of the people in in this young man's world, his little brother, uh, were just overly dependent or utterly dependent on various forms of government handouts. And so how the the book's, uh, you know, main premise is that culture really matters and that government over generations destroys culture and destroys souls by uh, just creating uh, an environment where dependency is the norm. So it's, uh, it's, you know, a little bit of a sad book, but he also has an uplifting message in it that we can, we can turn this around if we just understand it a little better. Well, we can turn it around, and I think on a case-by-case basis, probably, uh, probably Adam had a very positive impact on this uh, on this young brother, or this brother of his, as well. So, I think uh, you know we can look to do things on a macro scale, but most of, most often it's going to be let's start with our own families, love and care for them and the people around us. I think Jeff. So, I, I look forward to the uh, to learning more about Adam's work as well. We're out of time, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining me. We want to have you back more often. Uh, uh, to share the Mises Institute with our listeners. Thanks so much for being with me today. Okay, thank you, Jay. Well, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with James Perloff as soon as we come back from commercial break. So uh, you won't want to miss what he has to say uh, about uh, chapters three and four from his book, Truth is a Lonely Warrior. We'll be right back with James Perloff.
it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Kalinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Kalinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Kalinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Kalinex by visiting kalinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Kalinex is publicly traded under the symbols CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number 4, Taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm really pleased to have with me James Perloff. He's the author of several books, uh, including The Shadows of Power, which was the first book of his that I read. It sold over 100,000 copies. Uh, Tornado in a Junkyard is another one that he's written that is very interesting. And the one we want to talk about uh, today, and uh, uh, actually the first Tuesday of every month, is Truth is a a Lonely Warrior. Uh, It's a book that, uh, that I am most fascinated with. Uh, it is, uh, and, and as I say, we want to talk to him on the first Tuesday of each month about this book, taking two chapters at a time. Uh, when I read the book, I said, this is something we need to spend more than just one session. We need to really get into it because I think it's so important in terms of understanding what's going on in American politics and American economy uh, today. So chapter one, we talked about chapter one and two last week, chapter one. Uh, was titled Six Wars. That was a discussion of the last six major wars uh, that the U.S. has been involved in. And then Chapter 2 was titled uh, The Powers That Be, and that identified uh, David Rockefeller and other uh, and the organization that he was uh, very much, the Rockefellers, very much involved with the Council on Foreign Relations located here in New York City. Uh, but I know that many of you will probably say, oh, yeah, there you go again, Taylor, you're a conspiracy nut you are. Uh, I would just uh, like to read a briefly read a uh, a quote from David Rockefeller in David Rockefeller's memoirs, page four hundred five. David Rockefeller said, uh, quoting uh, David Rockefeller, he said, "Some even believe we are part of a secret cabal working against the best interest of the United States, characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring." with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure, one world, if you will. If that's the charge, I stand guilty, and I'm proud of it, David Rockefeller. So there you have it. I mean, right from the horse's mouth, he's suggesting that we are uh, important, powerful people, and we are in a, about structuring a one-world government, in essence, uh, and, uh, and he's proud of it. Well, last month in our discussion, uh, James Perloff discussed, as I mentioned, the six wars, uh, the last six wars, and how the likes of the Rockefellers and other very powerful men were able to influence the media uh, and stage false flags that uh, rallied Americans to engage in war. 
You know, it's a it's really you have to have the population behind a war to to really uh, prosecute it successfully, and then sometimes it's not all that successful as we found out in the Vietnam War. Um, but you know, so we discussed the, the Spanish-American War, World War One, World War Two, Korean War, Vietnam War, Iraq War, uh, and I would encourage all of you, if you haven't heard the first interview that we did, to go to uh, J. Taylor Media or to uh, the uh, Turning Hard Times into Good Times website uh, at the Voice America Business Channel to uh, to tune into that. Uh, but better yet, let me also suggest that you buy the book at Amazon.com. You can buy the book, um, and there are I noticed quite a few uh, comments uh, about uh, truth is a lo- lonely warrior. So a lot of people are reading this book, uh, and today we want to talk about chapters three and four of the book. Chapter three is titled "The Devil as Banker," and chapter four is titled "How the Cartel Has Run America." So thanks, James, for joining me again. Uh, Jay, it's a, a delight and an honor to be on your show again. Always, always good to hear from you. And uh, let's get right into it. Um, there was actually, um, let me just turn to it here, a quote I'd like to read to my listeners uh, from Abraham Lincoln. Uh, this is uh, in Chapter 3 of the book. Uh, Lincoln said, I see in the near future a crisis approaching that unnerves me and causes me to tremble for the safety of my country. Corporations have been enthroned. An era of corruption will follow, and the money power of the country will endeavor to prolong its reign by working upon the prejudices of the people until the wealth is aggregated in a few hands and the republic is destroyed. That was Abraham Lincoln. He wrote that or stated that in November 20, uh, 21st of November, 1864. Well, James, uh, here's the question. I wonder, can you give us some examples of how uh, the prejudices of the people, or let's say the propaganda, or the desires of the people, have been manipulated uh, by the powers that be. Well, Jay, uh, my book doesn't really concern it so, so much with uh, the prejudices of the American people, even though I, I had that quote from Lincoln there. Although it's fair to say that uh, prejudices are built up uh, through the media, which we know today mainstream media is controlled by just six giant uh, corporations. Uh, we have examples of that in the wars uh, episode of uh, the, the last talk we had together where we talked about how uh, false atrocity tales were told to the Spaniards in Cuba to uh, heat up the potential for the Spanish-American War, and there were false atrocity stories about the Germans cutting off hands of children in Belgium, which were later discredited. And, you know, the 1991 Gulf War, we had uh, the story of the, the baby incubators deaths that were uh, turned out to be completely fabricated. And so prejudices can be created in order to generate a policy. But I think if we talked about what people want in life, and on your show deals a lot with prosperity, uh, I've noticed that in in, uh, looking at the establishment uh, that runs America, that they often have paired the phrase peace and prosperity over the years and promised us peace and promised us prosperity, which people do want. So in that way, they're working upon the desires of the people. Um, but those promises have always been broken. You know, I mean, World War One, they promised that would be the war to end all wars. And oh, yeah. we know that it wasn't by any means. And, um, you know, prosperity, you know, you've got the uh, Security and Prosperity Partnership now, which was born out of NAFTA. And NAFTA was supposed to bring us prosperity. And, of course, it didn't. Uh, we After NAFTA and we got into GATT, 
and the World Trade Organization, we saw uh, millions of jobs heading overseas and uh, the American economy in decline. So uh, they will certainly uh, uh, work on public opinion to get their policies uh, agree, uh, agreed to, but um, it's basically their prejudices and uh, desires that this book is concerned with. Yeah, now how to, how to spin it around, though, to make the people believe uh, that they're getting a great deal seems to be uh, the way the game is played, isn't it? I mean, it's all about uh, a great deal of deception, it would seem to me. Well, if America was meant to be by the people and for the people, uh, it certainly doesn't seem to be heading in that direction these days. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think, a crime against the American people has, has been and is being perpetrated by a ruling elite. Uh, but as you point out in your book, you know, you say follow the money. That's what we don't ever want to try to find out where a crime is committed. Most often, at least big crimes, it, it involves money. Uh, talk to us a little bit about who, where does that path, that follow the money path lead to? Well, uh, let me give you an historical quote. This is from Ferdinand Lundberg. Uh, you might be familiar with him. He was a, he wrote for the uh, Wall Street Journal and other financial publications. He wrote a, really a landmark book in 1937 called um, America's 60 Families. Uh-huh. And I'm just going to be a quote from the beginning of that book, which is then elaborated by this, this very long book now out of print. It said, quote, the United States is owned and dominated by a hierarchy of its 60 richest families. These families are the living center of the modern oligarchy, which dominates the United States, functioning discreetly under a democratic form of government behind which a de facto government, absolutist and plutocratic, has has taken form. This de facto government is actually the government of the United States, invisible, shadowy, is the government of money and a dollar democracy, unquote, Ferdinand Lundberg. And he goes on to show how uh, uh, presidential candidates who became presidents, like Herbert Hoover and Woodrow Wilson, be they Republican or Democrat, were actually chosen by the 60 before the American people ever had a chance to vote. And so that is why it is correct to say that democracy is to a large extent an illusion right now in America because it's even worse than in Lundberg's day. Remember that quote is from 1937. Yeah. Oh, indeed. And uh, Okay, so, well, you know, so certainly the Federal Reserve was created. You point to the Council of Foreign Relations, and, you know, I, I see these guys from the Council of Foreign Relations uh, very well spoken, very well dressed, seemed very civilized, seemed, uh, you, you know, very decent fellows. I see them on Bloomberg all the time, uh, and they're all there, you know, trying to tell us about how they're making life better for us. Um, so why are you, you know, why do you, why do you, why are you critical of the Council of Foreign Relations? I mean, they seem like such good guys. Well, first of all, uh, big money can buy a lot of PR and a lot of nice clothes, uh, but it doesn't necessarily buy the truth. And uh, let me just quote what a former member of the Council on Foreign Relations said about the organization. That is Admiral Chester Ward, a former judge advocate of the U.S. Navy. Um, he was in the CFR for 16 years. He said, quote, the goal of the Council on Foreign Relations is submergence of U.S. sovereignty into an all-powerful one-world government. This lust to surrender the sovereignty and independence of the United States is pervasive throughout most of the membership. In the entire CFR lexicon, there's no term of revulsion carrying a meaning so deep as America first, unquote. And let me just point out, uh, Jay, that this is not a patriotic organization. This was formed in 1921 as a direct reaction to the U.S. Senate's rejection of uh, America joining the League of Nations. 
uh, because mm. we did not uh, ratify the Versailles Treaty. And they were, uh, the banksters were not happy with that. They wanted uh, world government. And so the CFR was formed, and you know, their flagship journal is called the uh, it's called Foreign Affairs, and their very first issue, 1922, they had an article called um, uh, The Next Goal for America. I'm sorry, that's not quite the right uh, uh, title. I, I don't have it in front of me. But, but that's the, the idea. It spelled out was that we should join the League of Nations. And then the second issue, which I do have in front of me from 1922, uh, declared, quote, um, there's going to be no peace or prosperity for mankind so long as it remains divided into independent states. The real problem today is that of world government, unquote. And you can bring it up to 2006. Uh, Richard Haas, president of the council, says, quote, sovereignty must be redefined if states are to cope with globalization. Globalization implies that sovereignty is not only becoming weaker in reality, but that it needs to become weaker, unquote. And you just go on and on. The, yeah. Weakening national sovereignty is a prerequisite to consolidating the world, and these guys are behind NAFTA, behind uh, internationally behind the EU, which are you know, they're just a regional stepping stones towards their ultimate goal of a world government. But the other reason I would criticize the council is the the way they've dominated the cab- uh, cabinets of presidents through the years. And yes. this is from the uh, rear cover of my book, Truth Is an Only Warrior. Uh, since its 1921 founding, which small organization has produced 21 secretaries of defense, 19 treasury secretaries, 18 secretaries of state, and 16 CIA directors. Of course, that's the council. Um, you know, Bill Clinton picked 12 CFR members for his cabinet. Uh, if you look at um, the cabinet today of Obama, you've got John Kerry at state, um, Jacob Lew at Treasury, uh, his predecessor, Geithner, were members of the Council on Foreign Relations. The guy who just took over at Defense, Ashton Carter, is a member. Uh, his predecessor, Chuck Hagel, was a member, as was his predecessor, Robert Gates. Uh, Homeland Security Chief Jay Johnson's a member, uh, head of commerce, head of energy. Why do you have one organization? Remember, this, is, this group has less than 5,000 members, so why does one organization get to dominate the presidential cabinets of both Democrats and Republicans going back uh, 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 many decades, and why isn't, hasn't the public been made aware of this? Well, that's, that's, a, that's a very good question, and I would guess it has something to do with, with something you wrote uh, in, in your book, Shadows of Power, talking about how uh, this same group of, of elites have gained control of the American media, the major media. Well, yes, and uh, as we were talking about, there are six corporations that own over 90% of the media in America. It's right. Time Warner, Walt Disney, Viacom, News Corp, CBS, and NBC Universal. And you look at Time Warner, and, you know, people think we have a diverse media because we got, you know, all these TV stations on cable, you know, but Time Warner owns not only Time Magazine, but it owns CNN, it owns HBO, uh, it owned, uh, America Online before the spinoff, it owns, uh, TBS, TNT, Sports Illustrated, Fortune Magazine, Money Magazine, people, it just goes on. Uh, yeah. it's true for all these six corporations, and right. if you look at their leadership, what do you see? You see the CFR, or Rupert Murdoch, uh, uh who, uh, owns News Corp is CFR. Uh, if you go to CNN, uh, the president of um, uh, Time Warner, Jeffrey Bukis, member of the CFR. You look at the the uh, news anchors, Judy Woodruff, Paula Zahn, Aaron Burnett, over the years, CNN members of the CFR. Right. Uh, when right. I wrote The Shadows of Power in 1987, it wasn't easy to do research as, as it is now. There's no Internet, but I found in my research that 
of 14 directors of C- CBS, this 1987, 11 were members of the CFR. Again, right. they only have about less today, less than, than 5,000 members. So again, how do you have this one group uh, at, the, at the heads of corporations, banks, governments, and media? Okay, so how you have it is you finance it. You have to gain control of the printing press, which is what the Federal Reserve was all about, right? The Federal Reserve created, uh, but created before the CFR was created, but, but do you tie in the Federal Reserve and the people behind the Federal Reserve that created the Fed as part of this same cabal, as part of the same uh, ruling elite? Well, absolutely, because uh, David Rockefeller, who's been called you know, the kingmaker of America, he was the one who basically picked Jimmy Carter to be president. Uh, he was long uh, chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations and still is the honorary chairman. He's actually the grandson of uh, Nelson Aldrich, who introduced the original Federal Reserve legislation. Uh, his, uh, that was his maternal grandfather. And it was very much, if you look at the original membership roster of... Um, <laughs> Uh, the Council of Foreign Relations from 1921. So uh, all J.P. Morgan people. I mean, it was J.P. Morgan's personal attorney, John W. Davis, who was the original president of the CFR, and the original vice president was Paul Cravath, who was also uh, a Morgan uh, attorney, and the original chairman was Russell Leffingwell, who was a partner in J.P. Morgan and Company. So okay, so we're so we're talking about banksters, and and the chapter mm-hmm. three is titled "The Devil as Banker." So you had to get control of the money system, you had to get control of the printing presses, you had to be able to print money so that you could then buy government, buy the media, and buy wars essentially, and redistribute and, and re and restructure the maps in accordance with the one world government that these guys are trying to form and again you know i was just i was just struck by what you were talking about a moment ago it sounded uh, i think it was haas that you were quoting sounded just like david rockefeller and his quote in his book so this is not anything that is not known we know what these guys are up to these guys are trying to form a one world government uh... and they're doing about it i, I think all the wars in the middle east we talked to daniel uh, McAdams of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity on my podcast on a weekly basis, and it sounds to me like these guys are really making some headway towards forming a one-world government. Well, out of chaos uh, will come uh, uh, new uh, organizations, new, new uh, systems of control. Just as you know, uh, the chaos of World War One was used to create the uh, League of Nations, the chaos of World War II uh, was used to create uh, the UN as well as the World Bank, and if they had a World War III, they'd be looking at a, wanting a global currency and a global government. You know, uh, we're just two minutes yet, uh, and we're just almost out of time. I have to tell my listeners they got to buy this book to read about. There's lots more to talk about. We can't get to it, but uh, the motives for creating the Fed, uh, stocks and bondage, something from nothing, soaking the American people, the redistribution of wealth, the taking away of liberty and freedom from the individual, and, and taking that power and giving it to an elite group of people is what Lincoln warned about. What Lincoln was warning us about back in, in the 1860s, and it's happening. It's happening right now in a very, very... Uh, I think very accelerated manner. Chapter four: How the cartel has run America, uh, and we just don't have time to get into it. But some of the topics there: uh, 1921, the Council of Foreign Relations was formed. Uh, you know, by essentially the Rockefellers come into the picture in a big way. Then, post World War II, the United Nations was formed. You had the Marshall Plan. Very interesting insights there. And you know, maybe we're going to have to pick up on chapter three the next time we talk. James, because we are just out of time. But anyway, 30 seconds for a closing comment, perhaps, from you. 
Well, Jay, uh, thank you very much for having me on. I, uh, I think it's uh, just a matter of critical thinking and analysis to see that the pattern of events that we're seeing unfolding, this is, not, this is not a random amalgamation of events. When we see deceptions being used consistently to bring us into wars, and we see the same people at the helm uh, serving in the cabinets of the presidents, we know that this is by design. Uh, you know, the guys who, who planned the Federal Reserve System on Jekyll Island uh, wound up running the system. Paul Warburg, who ran that meeting that formed the Fed, wound up being the first vice chairman of the Fed. Benjamin Strong, who was at that meeting, wound up uh, being the uh, head of the New York Fed, the first head of the New York Fed. So this is yeah. not by coincidence. Or, no, or not by, by coincidence. Well, oh. Yeah, this is, this is by design, and people need to understand the design of the past and how it's led up to today's uh, events and the suffering economic and uh, and uh, individual as we right. go to war after war that we're, right. Amer- the American people are now experiencing. Right. we got to take our heads out of the sand, folks, and, and try to see what's really going on. So thank you very much, James, for being with us again. And we'll look to do it again in the, in the next uh, in the first Tuesday of next month. Thank you so much for being with me again. Thank you, Jay. Folks, uh, that is all the time we have. Uh, next week, Daniel Oliver will be with me, and I'm going to be talking to Jean Martineau. He's the president and CEO of Dynacor Gold Mines, one of my favorite and most successful stock picks in the gold sector. And I'm going to be talking, hopefully, to Michael Oliver again for his uh, takes on the market. I want to thank our sponsors, Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer, and all of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye, and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Where infrastructure meets grade. Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake. 